Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Welcome to another online edition of the OHC's uh, series of book and print talks. Our book and print talks are presented by University of Oregon faculty authors whose recently published books were supported by an Oregon Humanities Center research fellowship and or an Oregon Humanities Center subvention grant to help cover publication costs. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option at the bottom of the Zoom window. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and our YouTube channel. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker, Nina Amstutz, Assistant Professor in the Department of the History of Art and Architecture in the College of Design at the University of Oregon. Professor Amstutz studies 18th and 19th century European art with particular interest in British and German art and issues surrounding landscape, nature, and the history of science. She completed her PhD in the history of art at the University of Toronto. Before joining the faculty at U of O, she was a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Paintings and Sculpture at the Yale Center for British Art where she co-curated the exhibition, The Critique of Reason, Romantic Art, 1760 to 1860. Professor Amstotz will speak to us today about her award-winning monograph, Caspar David Friedrich, Nature and the Self, published by Yale University Press in 2020. She worked on the book project during her 2017-2018 OHC Faculty Research Fellowship, and the publication was supported by an OHC subvention grant. Welcome, Nina. It's great to have you. We're looking forward to hearing about Caspar David Friedrich, Nature and the Self. Great. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction and for having me. I appreciate all of you coming on this Friday to listen to me talk about the book. Um, in addition to this book, I also wanted to uh, just give a shout out to the Oregon Humanities Center that also supported this recently edited volume which the title translates to the image of nature in romanticism, art as philosophy and science, which is an edited volume that's really closely related um, to the larger project. And I'm also grateful for the support for that one. And that just came out in March. All right, so I, I, I'm gonna give a sort of informal overview really of the, the book project. And I guess I'll, I'll share my PowerPoint now so that you can follow along with some images. Um, and, and really just sort of go over what motivated the project and some of the sort of main ideas that carry through. And I'll show you a few images that I'll, I'll talk about uh, sort of generally in terms of my interpretation to, again, give you a kind of taste, but I won't necessarily give you an excerpt of one chapter or another. Um, so I began this book, Caspar David Friedrich, Nature and the Self, uh, really with an interest in the relationship between uh, German Romantic landscape painting and science. And most of the scholars who've uh, written about Friedrich's work have, have rather focused on the spiritual and uh, political dimensions of his work, as well as um, certainly intersections with some of the uh, philosophers um, of the early Romantic period, as well as, as poetry. And really the majority of, of books on the artist tend to focus on a set of iconic paintings. And I've just sort of put a handful on the screen for you that many of you have maybe seen before. Um, and they focus on these paintings, certainly with good reason. Um, they occasioned all sorts of interesting 
intellectual debates um, in aesthetics and art criticism around 1800. And so there's a rich sort of discourse from the period itself um, that looks at these paintings. Now, with respect to science, um, there had already been some scholarship um, on Friedrich and the natural sciences, especially the earth sciences. And so some scholars had looked at intersections between his landscapes, particularly his paintings of mountains um, with uh, the emerging science of geology. And, and this painting here, the Watzmann, for instance, is a great example uh, because it's been interpreted really as a, a painting that is in dialogue with new theories emerging at the time, particularly at the hands of the geologist Abraham Godlob Werner about the successive stages of mountain formation, um, uh, indicating that the earth sort of was, was created in a series of stages really and that different mountain formations are emblematic of those stages. And so potentially Friedrich was very interested in the history of the earth um, and, that, and that had already been sort of looked at at length. Um, in my own work, I instead decided to focus on, on the life sciences. And I did that um, because I noticed uh, that there were a whole sort of series of really interesting works that are largely completed a little bit later um, in Friedrich's uh, lifetime that seemed to me to intersect in sort of meaningful ways with the emerging science of biology, um, which also took momentous strides um, in the early 19th century. And these paintings, um, they seem to me to express a kind of real interest in the morphology of nature, namely an interest in nature's forms uh, more than anything else, the forms of plants, the forms of rocks and what have you. And, and what's even more notable about them is that most of these later works don't actually have any human figures in them. And human figures, at this time still tend to be a really central place uh, or centrally positioned within landscape painting. There has to be some kind of human narrative or icon iconography or something along those lines in landscape for it to be considered um, a legitimate painting. Um, but Friedrich certainly breaks with that idea. And as I looked at these, I started to think that more than anything, really, this attention to form indicated uh, closer intersections with um, imagery from the lines, life sciences and, and natural history illustrations in particular, much more than the tradition of landscape painting up until this point. And I'll just uh, show you what I mean. This is sort of a, a classic uh, example of an 18th century landscape painting um, by the British artist Richard Wilson. And you'll probably notice if you look at it that the composition is, is kind of clearly divided into the foreground, middle ground, and background. There's a tree on the left that sort of nicely frames the composition. Um, there's a river that leads off into the distance so that your eye is sort of carried uh, off into the background. And then there are various signs of human civilization, whether it's the architecture or a few um, staffage figures here as well and, and some sculptural fragment. So this is sort of the tradition that Friedrich was um, brought up in. But when I was looking at these paintings of his that were created later, again, I, as I said, I, I sort of felt like they might have more similarities actually with natural history illustration um, at the time. And in the late 18th century, uh, naturalists in particular were, were preoccupied with empirically studying nature's forms, um, particularly through individual parts. Uh, so not necessarily um, an investment in looking at nature 
um, as a whole uh, through visual illustrations at least, but looking at these sort of isolated specimens. And as you can see in, in this example by Humboldt and Bonplan, um, we have a, a kind of specimen that's placed against this neutral background. There's an attention to a few sort of isolated parts of the plant. Um, and again, a real kind of focus um, in the foreground on this one motif more than anything else. And these kinds of illustrations tend to be in large volumes where um, kind of hierarchical taxonomies are formed of, of like and unlike forms. But in any case, there's a real kind of attention uh, to the form of plants in order to sort of understand their larger place in nature. And certainly I think we can, we can see that similarity um, in um, some of Friedrich's works. And I'll just show you one more example because not all natural history illustrations from this time were necessarily without a background. Uh, but even in this example here, which is certainly much more romantic in flavor, um, the specimen is still sort of in the foreground. There's real attention um, to its morphology or its, or its form more broadly. So in my book, I suggest that there's this formal sort of relationship um, to natural history illustration and Friedrich's what I call portraits of nature ultimately. But I also suggest that his work is conceptually anchored uh, in the life sciences of the period. And there are a couple of sort of basic principles that led me uh, to that conclusion um, and that really inform how I approach his paintings. And so the first of those uh, principles is uh, specific more or less to the early 19th century. And that is that during the romantic period in Germany, landscape painting and science were really understood as complementary um, or even mutually supporting investigative practices. So that's the first one. And the second one um, is a much broader idea. And that is that art and science are discourses of knowledge um, that are ultimately shaped by larger cultural forces. Um, and that science doesn't necessarily determine what those forces are. Uh, and with respect to sort of natural science, I guess, and landscape painting, um, uh, underneath that is really a historically specific way of looking at nature and that underpins both science and art at the time. It doesn't come from one or the other, uh, but, but leads ultimately to sometimes shared objectives, including shared aesthetic traditions or visual traditions. So I wanna spend a little bit more time talking about those two sort of basic principles which underpin this larger study. So the first landscape painting and science. So one thing that's really important to emphasize about this, this historical moment is that the visual arts, the humanities and the sciences in general didn't exist yet as completely discrete disciplines. The sort of modern university structure that we live in was much more fluid at that time or was, or at the very least was sort of just beginning to form in, in, into what it is today. And so in this climate, art was understood to be a form of science um, and vice versa. And there are a lot of romantic artists and writers that particularly discuss that relationship between art and science um, in their work. And I wanna mention uh, or, or talk about one figure above all else uh, simply because he's sort of foundational uh, for this study and that is Carl Gustav Karas. And, and Karas was, a close friend of Caspar David Friedrichs after 1816. Um, he was himself foremost um, preoccupied with a variety of different sciences, including uh, geology, gynecology, 
um, human physiology, all sorts of, of different sciences really. But he was also an amateur landscape painter and particularly emulated Caspar David Friedrich's style and, and was taught by Friedrich how to paint. And along with that tutelage, um, he was, was interested in landscape theory and uh, largely sort of through conversations with Friedrich uh, initially and then later on uh, through conversations with Alexander von Humboldt and uh, Goethe actually, um, he wrote these letters on landscape painting. The cover uh, is, is on the right there, nine letters on landscape painting, which were written between 1815 and 1824. And these letters are one of the most important documents um, of uh, landscape theory from this particular moment. And they really emphasize the sort of common objectives and methodological principles uh, of art and science at this particular moment. And I wanna just read you one quote, quote from this text that I think I kind of aptly um, summarizes in a way Karras's views on the subject. And so he writes that art, quote, prepares and promotes the cognitive awareness of nature which is natural science. Um, so again, really not choosing to distinguish those things um, so readily. And the shared objective between what he sees really as two complementary approaches to the natural world um, ultimately can really benefit from integrating the conventions um, of the other into its methods and practices. And so with respect to natural science, for instance, um, he insisted that uh, having a command of natural science would heighten the landscape painter's awareness of the nuances of nature's forms and cycles. Um, so this, this kind of background, the foundation in science would ultimately lead landscape painters to approach the world um, in new ways. On the one hand, with a sort of increased awareness of empirical detail, uh, but also potentially with an awareness of the forces at work beneath the surface of things. And so it's both about Kind of the exterior of nature and the interior that natural science could, could aid the landscape painter. And then on the flip side, he equally emphasized that uh, the landscape painter could help the natural scientist understand the essential character of nature. Um, and particularly that would happen through uh, something a little bit vague, but nonetheless important at this moment, and that is artistic intuition. So without art, Karis posited that uh, the knowledge that could be gleaned from any kind of scientific inquiry would be limited in scope. Um, and uh, ultimately the scientists can help us understand nature's parts individually, but it's really only the artists that can give us a sort of total impression of nature. Um, and so again, uh, there are limitations from sort of both sides, but in tandem together, um, ultimately we have a kind of greater insight um, into the natural world. And so Friedrich's landscapes in particular were of real uh, interest to Karas, um, as well as other scientists at the time. I'll mention one more. Uh, Gotthilf Heinrich von Schubert was another uh, natural scientist that Friedrich met and, and befriended in 1806. And Schubert wrote this famous text, which is rather esoteric and, and certainly doesn't fall within the mainstream in, in the history of science, but at the time was uh, very respected as an, as an important text, and it, the title translates to Views from the Night Side of Natural Science from 1808. And in this text, uh, Schubert sort of goes through the, the whole history of the earth, beginning with the cosmos and ending with, the, with human life, and he has a kind of breaking point in one chapter where he stops talking about 
of human development and instead turns to Friedrich's landscapes. And he discusses a cycle of the seasons that Friedrich created uh, very early in the 19th century, basically to explain the stages of human life um, and the parallels with cycles in nature. And so he actually, uh, in this very serious scientific text, um, uh, interjects with Friedrich's paintings to suggest that there's something that, again, we, we simply can't capture through the written word, we have to look to painting in order to understand it. So that's the, the first sort of main principle. And so I wanna spend a little time now on the second, and that was the, the idea that there is a historically specific way of looking at nature in any given moment, um, and that um, it's worth sort of understanding what that means uh, both by looking at art and science um, in, in, in order to understand uh, landscape in, in the Romantic period. So um, I'll start with science uh, simply because uh, it's a little easier to sort of glean what that looks like um, from the perspective of the sciences merely because uh, we're used to reading things and science tends to be written out uh, through words, whereas of course paintings are, are much more subjective to interpret. Although I'm sure some of the literature scholars, if they're already in the room, might disagree. But nonetheless, uh, we're gonna we're gonna start with science. Um, so romantic naturalists such as Karras and Schubert, they were and and generally the individuals that were moving in Friedrich's circle, um, they were deeply influenced by Friedrich Wilhelm Joseph von Schelling's nature philosophy. And Schelling viewed nature and her parts as an interconnected organic whole. And Schelling's followers, in turn, uh, really tried to analyze uh, different categories of life and matter together. Um, so they, they rejected the idea that you might focus your study on one aspect of nature at the expense of others. They approached nature holistically, uh, which is certainly something that we're seeing a return to uh, today. And in studies by, by Karras and others, uh, in addition to Schubert, uh, worth mentioning are the sort of obscure individuals such as Lawrence Oaken and, and Joseph Gures. Um, they, uh, in these sort of larger studies of nature that um, begin with the cosmos and, and sort of end with human life, they tend to draw all sorts of parallels throughout, and particularly parallels between animal and vegetable matter or plants and animals, um, but also with the mineral kingdom um, as well. And uh, what's further sort of noteworthy about all the kind of parallels that they draw between different classes of life and matter um, is that they're more or less always seeking to make observations about human life. Um, so these texts tend to be uh, very anthropocentric, even though they're looking at nature holistically. And they all are searching uh, really for these kind of meaningful parallels between human life and nature at large. Um, they're seeking to sort of discern common laws uh, or origins, um, shares, shared similarities or things uh, among different forms in nature, materials and processes. And um, they all took sort of the, uh, the idea from nature philosophy that there's also this kind of progressive tendency in nature, which is almost a kind of proto-evolutionary idea that everything sort of in nature is constantly becoming more complex and that culminates really in human life. Although that idea in itself is, is certainly not aligned with evolutionary theory anymore. Um, but uh, animals and plants uh, in these texts were deemed to be sort of less evolved or less developed 
uh, forms lower stages, if you will, in this developmental progression that culminates with human life. And what that means is, is really a kind of early theory of recapitulation, meaning that the human body or the human mind contains within it all aspects of nature, including these lower forms of plants and animals. And sort of noteworthy about this whole kind of um, theory of, of life is that uh, because the human is sort of placed on top and is thought to sort of contain all aspects of nature within it, uh, what that sort of means is that the human is also thought to be able to really intuit uh, all things about nature, the internal workings of nature at large, um, sort of having um, all, of, all of these sort of facets of nature sort of contained within it. I want to just read you one passage by another nature uh, philosopher and natural scientist, Henrik Stevens. Um, this passage comes from a text on plants, actually. Um, but again, in keeping with this um, model of always thinking about relationships with the human, um, he specifically um, has something, I think, very interesting to say about the, the mutually supporting journey, really, between um, investigating nature and self-discovery. And so he writes... Do you want to investigate nature? Then cast a glance inwards and in the stages of spiritual formation, it may be granted to you to see the stages of natural development. Do you want to know yourself? Investigate nature and your actions are those of the spirit there." End quote. So in my book, I, I explore how this uh, holistic perspective on nature, which situates ultimately the South really at the center of the investigation of nature, inflects Friedrich's work. Um, and I question what the larger significance might be um, keeping this sort of self-investigation in mind uh, behind his natural forms, ultimately. And so I wanna uh, turn now to a few examples um, of the kinds of investigations that I undertake in the book. And I, I start here with uh, an image pair um, because it's very foundational um, for um, for the sort of rest of my chapters, and this is actually incidentally the, the paintings that I worked on for my fellowship um, at the Oregon Humanities Center as well. Um, so as I was looking at, at Friedrich's paintings with the sort of background of the life sciences uh, in mind and these, these sort of constant connections that are drawn uh, by naturalists between the human and the natural uh, or um, other forms in nature, uh, I began to notice that a number of his later paintings that don't have human figures seem to be sort of reworked from earlier paintings that do. And this is a, a, an important example um, where we, we see this particular formation of chalk cliffs on the Baltic island of Rügen. Um, in the first painting on the left, you see three uh, figures sort of looking out uh, into the, onto the sea. And then in the other work, which is a, a smaller work of watercolor that's um, in principle completely unrelated um, to the earlier painting, of course, you see a similar view, uh, but the figures have been removed. And in many of these kind of reworked compositions, that's sort of the end of it. The, the narrative, the human narrative element has been taken away. Uh, but in a couple of cases, this being, I think, the most important one, um, I propose that it's not that the figures have simply been removed, but they've actually been sort of reimagined or metamorphosed into landscape motifs itself. And what I mean by that um, is, is um, at least in this case, um, if you, you look at the 
tree stumps or formations, they have sort of parallels with the human figures. And so the loosest connection I'd say would be this figure um, on the right. Uh, he sort of uh, leans similarly to this tree stump um, on the right here. Then on the far left, this woman um, with the red dress, uh, if we imagine sort of her legs extending over the cliff without the dress on, uh, there's sort of an analog in the, these um, aerial roots or branches that are extending over the edge. Uh, and this broken off branch here even uh, finds a parallel in her arm. And then I think the most compelling similarity is uh, between this shrub here um, and this, this kneeling figure on his hands and knees, uh, right after the detail of this little knob where, which corresponds with his head and this bend here that corresponds with his, his raised rump. And so I began to sort of reflect on what this might mean for some of uh, Friedrich's other portraits of nature that don't necessarily have kind of direct parallels with an earlier painting per se. Uh, what, what might this transformation mean for um, his later work and how we are supposed to understand it in relation to the viewer or simply the human subject more broadly? And so in the, in the text, I, or in my various chapters, I undertake a sort of series of case studies of, of Friedrich's portraits of nature and investigate them um, in relation to really writing and illustration uh, about the human subject. And so in my third chapter, I look at Friedrich's portraits of trees and I compare them with a variety of illustrations um, of uh, the nervous and vascular systems. And this is, is relevant because in, in the writings of Karas and Schubert and others who were in, informed by nature philosophy, um, they tend to view uh, the nervous and vascular system as what they even describe as a kind of residual plant that lives inside the human body. It's the sort of vegetative part of the body. It branches out much in the same way that a tree branches out. So those parallels are sort of directly drawn by life science scientists at the time. In my fourth chapter, I look at um, this painting of uh, the setting or, or rising sun, it's ambiguous. Um, and I, I draw parallels uh, with the writing and imagery of the human eye um, at the time. Um, I think uh, the way in which the sun is sort of centrally situated and surrounded by these uh, branching trees really evokes the retinal nerves and veins as they were illustrated. Uh, but also in nature philosophical writing, the eye is usually understood as the uh, human analog of the sun in that the eye is a kind of microcosm of the macrocosm, the sun, uh, and the eye can be understood as a form of light in itself. I also look at um, this painting here um, in chapter four in relation to how the hand was understood um, in romantic science. Um, and so uh, this particular rock formation actually exists um, in uh, a region called Saxon Switzerland in Germany, um, in Saxony. And um, the actual formation is similar, but a little bit different. Friedrich has added this fifth peak here which I think has the sort of subtle effect of evoking a hand sort of rising up from the depths of the earth. Um, and this is relevant because in, in, again, in nature philosophical writing at this time, the hand is also understood as the sort of microcosm or the, the human equivalent 
of the formative forces in the earth more broadly, that, that form itself um, as it exists in nature is somehow um, in analogy or in analog with the hand. So those are some um, kind of examples of the kind of analyses that I do, um, which are sort of interspersed with, again, writing from these various nature philosophers at the time. And I ultimately argue that uh, Friedrich um, in these works strove to overcome the sort of sense of distance or alienation between the self and nature um, that many uh, in his generation were experiencing um, as a result of the industrial revolution and other forces. Um, and he does this by sort of subtly seeking out or revealing these elemental sympathies between um, human life um, and nature at large. Um, and these, these sort of shared objectives, which we also find uh, among naturalists at the time or the writings of naturalists at the time that the search for these meaningful parallels between the human mind and body um, and the natural world. Um, this isn't coming from one place or another. Uh, it's not coming from science or art per se. It's something again, that is a kind of reflection of a larger way of understanding nature um, at the time. Okay, let's see what the time is. Oh, right, right around 30 minutes. Great. So maybe I'll, I'll stop there then and, and open it up for questions. Thanks so much, Nina, for that uh, really interesting recounting of the work of the book. And again, let me invite our audience. Uh, if you've got questions you'd like to ask Professor Amstutz, please type them into the chat box and I will ask them. Uh, the first question is, um, can you say, do you have a theory about why this happens in Friedrich's later works. And you particularly, you pointed out how he sort of goes back to earlier works and, and redoes them and removes the human figures. And many of the paintings I think that most of us are familiar with by Friedrich are ones where there is a human figure in the, in the foreground and you're looking out into nature. Do you have any thoughts about why that shift happened later in his career? Sure, and no, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are a couple of things we could say. I mean, first of all, um, as a younger artist, he's sort of more in, directly, I guess, in dialogue with a particular landscape tradition. He's sort of negotiating that and, and finding his own path. And there are a whole variety of kind of radical breaks, um, even among his earlier paintings that, that break with landscape convention in, in a host of different ways than I talk about, right? And so I think there's that. There's a sort of artist who's really quite radical and sort of reinventing the wheel. And he's doing that through a variety of ways, um, which is, is really consistent throughout his career. Um, and why he starts doing this in, in the particular way that I suggest later on, I would say has to do with, again, these nature philosophers and, and naturalists with whom he's sort of corresponding. Um, particularly Karas, um, that's a, a very close relationship that he develops after 1816. And so, you know, most of the works that I'm looking at in my um, in my book are from the 1820s. Um, so yeah, so I think it, it to some extent has to do with the circle that he was moving in and the sort of ideas that he was exposed to, and particularly that collaboration on the uh, nine letters on landscape painting that I mentioned. Although it's it's written by Karas, it is generally thought to be at least in part written. Um, through the sort of dialogue with Friedrich. And I think that's sort of where, again, these, I, these ideas about landscape painting and science are being parsed out. So you mentioned that um, on the one hand, uh, during this period, people like Friedrich and these, and these natural philosophers um, 
have a holistic view of nature, but at the same time, this view of nature is very anthropocentric. And you mentioned mm -hmm. in uh, passing that we are returning to a more holistic view of, of the place of humans in the natural landscape. But it seems that at this point, uh, anthropocentrism is, is not something that we want to be involved with. Do you want to say a little bit more about the relationship in your mind between that kind of romantic view of a holistic view of nature, which puts the human at the center of it, and uh, our views of that holism today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is, although I, I'm very open about the sort of anthropocentrism of the romantics, I, I would say, first of all, that there is sort of a, still a major distinction between how they think about things and say earlier paradigms of the cosmos. And so maybe the, the sort of most well-known one would that sort of comes before is the great chain of being, that there are these sort of discrete categories of life that are hierarchically arranged with the human on top. Um, and that, um, you know, goes back to the Middle Ages, um, but the Romantics, although they sort of maintain that hierarchy to some extent, there's crossover, right? And the human, again, has the plant within it, the animal within it. And so it's, it's a much more fluid sort of understanding that it really is proto-evolutionary. Um, it suggests common origins, not that the human is ultimately somehow separate from nature. And so I think there's a, a kind of real interest in romantic ideas about nature now in eco-critical thinking precisely for that reason, because even if the human is still privileged at that moment, um, there is this idea that actually we're not so separate from other life forms, that there are these, these sort of commonalities. Um, so yeah, I mean, in the present moment, I think we were just a lot farther obviously in science and we're no longer, uh, I suppose, uh, well, I suppose it depends who you're talking to, but I, I, would, I would think in the academy, at least we're less sort of informed by religious models of, of the world, right? Which tend to privilege the human, at least um, Western religions, your Western religion. So I, um, I would say that um, there's a lot to be sort of taken from romanticism, but of course um, the anthropocentric part is no longer of use for us and it's critical to let it go. So a couple of questions from uh, Dorothea Ostmeyer. Uh, the first is, what is the relationship between terms magic naturali and natural science in the period? Are you familiar with those terms? Magic naturali? That's what, that's what she has written here. <laughs> you want to explain further what you mean by that? Dorothea, you want to speak to that? I loved your talk and um, I'm teaching right now uh, the Runenberg by Tieck, which of course is an early version of landscape architecture or landscape painting, I would say in literary terms. And all the students in my class are fascinated with magic and so on. And of course, um, <clears throat> the magic naturali by Matius, I think was pretty important during this time as well as Oaken, as you mentioned. You know, there are different approaches and they connect um, perhaps much more to, to a kind of spiritual um, approach to nature than the later scientific one by Oaken, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me that the romantics uh, negotiate, you know, especially these diff two diff very different approaches. You know, you think of Jakob Böhme, um, um, yeah, especially the influence of Jakob Böhme, uh, also on Schelling, 
and mm -hmm. it says all these different romantic trends or Stefan uh, trends, you know, strike different ways of balancing or negotiating. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And again, the specific um, magic one, I, I have to be honest, I'm not familiar with, but um, certainly I, in the book, I look at um, Novalis and, and the hieroglyph as well. And Yakabuma comes into play there as well, particularly with Schubert. Um, and I, I think, you know, what's sort of interesting about that particular moment is the sort of maybe the metaphysical and the, you know, what we more consider science today aren't viewed sort of as conflicting directions, right? Um, the, the idea that there might be, you know, spiritual significance behind nature or things that are sort of beyond comprehension is, is not sort of in conflict with science. Um, so I, I, I mean, I agree with you that there are obviously a lot of different things sort of intersecting here. And, you know, I, I would never suggest either that, uh, even though I look at a particular strand in my book that Friedrich is, is sort of directly drawing on that. I think, again, he's very much in dialogue with sort of larger ideas about nature at the time. And, you know, one could approach the subject from a variety of different angles. Dorothy also had a second question, which is more specifically about uh, the cliff of Riggin that you showed us, which is, to, uh, how do you interpret the erasure of the human and living tree specifically in that in that work? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I mainly in that second chapter, which is where it's featured, I use that example specifically to sort of think about what anthropomorphism means at this particular moment and also metamorphosis. Um, so that particular case is actually not the only one um, from the time period either, or Friedrich is not the only artist to sort of do this. Um, I can share my screen again for a moment if that would be helpful and I can actually show you um, a, uh, another example um, by Philip Otto Runge, which I did not talking about for this talk, but we can see a similar thing happening here in this uh, little nature study that he's created of the same composition where um, in the rest in the flight, Joseph's body has been replaced by the stump and, and the Virgin Mary's veil has also been replaced here. And so with, with the example um, by Friedrich, I don't necessarily use this as a case study to investigate particular ideas uh, from the natural sciences. It sort of sets the stage for these more focused analyses. But if I had to do that, I would probably again, uh, lump it in with my analyses of trees, which tend to have to do again with the, an interest um, in the vascular and nervous systems as these sort of residual trees in the human body. Um, but I think again, in this case, what it suggests is a particular sort of way of rethinking landscape. It suggests more than anything, a kind of process that Friedrich was undergoing um, as he was seeking to sort of reinvent the wheel one more time and investigate ultimately very different themes um, in his work. And so this, this process of sort of taking an older composition, playing with it and rethinking it in a completely different context, um, it suggests sort of an interest in um, the sort of fluid boundaries uh, between the human um, and the non-human. And um, the, the way that, or the, the um, place that sort of metamorphosis plays in this chapter specifically is actually not in relation to Goethe. Goethe suggests that um, everything sort of metamorphoses to the more complex form 
which would imply that the human cannot become a tree, but only the tree can become a human. But in some of the other writings from the time about metamorphosis, particularly by Schubert, he suggests that there's always sort of an ebb and flow where everything is, is kind of in a transformative state permanently, uh, both becoming more complex and sort of retreating again to the simpler forms. Um, so I, yeah, in, in terms of that chapter, I mainly sort of look at it again as a case study, but, but focus certainly on the idea of metamorphosis. So a couple of follow-ups on, on your response. Um, one question is, what about those sailboats, which appear in both versions? Do you have any comments on those? It's, it's funny that you say that, because one of the most recent reviews of the book was like, what about the sailboats? <laughs> Um, so I appreciate your um, uh, excellent observation skills. Yeah, I mean, I, I am not sure I have anything so concrete to say about that other than the sailboats serve a sort of very uh, specific purpose. Um, they serve to create the impression of depth. Uh, I'll just pull it up again. Um, if, you, if you have sort of water in the background and you don't have those sailboats, um, then uh, the space doesn't recede. And so they have a kind of functional quality to them, um, perhaps that, that is, is worth sort of uh, continuing. And there, maybe it would have been other ways to achieve that. I don't know. But, but yeah, I don't have a, a great answer for that question um, beyond that. I'm sorry. Uh, but you, you, are, you and that reviewer <laughs> are on the same page. So the next question is from your colleague, Joyce Chang. Yeah. who thanks you for your talk. Uh, it's always a pleasure to hear about the Romantic Tradition's ambitious project of articulating a new anthropology through a new conception of natural sciences and cosmological terms. Joyce is interested in what you make of the emphasis on ideality in the Romantic conception of nature, which seems very pronounced in Karras and Friedrich. In other words, the emphasis on selective features and principles in nature that are considered ideal and sublime rather than vulgar. This is also interconnected with the renunciation of the social, as advocated by Karras, the artist needing to renounce the worldly. The refuge into an ideal nature is therefore a refuge into the idealized, into the idealized subjectivity, which can be accused of being apolitical. Do you have thoughts on that? Oh boy. Um, well, I guess the the maybe I'm not sure I fully know what you want me to, where you want me to go with that in terms of ideality. But if you're thinking sort of a priori ideas sort of in nature, if that's more or less where you're going with it, I would say that's sort of central um, to searching for sort of, um, or, or central to um, the natural sciences because after the 18th century and all this sort of empirical analysis that came with the enlightenment, the romantics were sort of really interested in finding out what it all means, right? There's, there's only so far you can go by, you know, analyzing the surface of things, right? Um, or, or every sort of individual part. They wanted to understand sort of the uh, connections with the whole, right? What does is, what is this little part tell us ultimately about us, about the whole? And so a priori ideas were sort of central uh, to constructing these sort of large cosmologies that have, cosmologies that have these threads that run throughout where everything has a common origin there are these continuities between microcosm and macrocosm. Um, these are obviously things that cannot simply be observed in uh, the empirical world. It's all an idea, right? 
Um, so that would be the sort of best answer. I think I can I can offer that very long question. Uh, thank you, Joyce. I'm happy to talk about it more with you at another point. So the next question is from Abigail Fine in the School of Music and Dance. And Abigail's question is, do Gothic ruins in these paintings correlate to a, have a correlate in human physiology and, and are they comparably anthropomorphic? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't analyze any paintings in the book that have ruins in them, um, but uh, I think ruins are important for the sort of larger, um, larger sort of theme in romantic landscape painting, whether it's you know pursued through the sciences or not, uh, between nature and the human subject, right? And so ruins, um, of course, suggest a civilization that is returning to nature or the humans sort of return to nature. They have that cyclical quality in the same way that, you know, many of Friedrich's paintings also have dying trees um, uh, right next to sort of new life sprouting. And so I think they're the ruin, at least, you know, in relation to my own project, even though it's, it's doesn't have a place in it per se, is that it, it again, suggests a kind of investigation um, uh, that seeks to sort of connect the human with the natural and to sort of undercut the idea that the human is sort of permanent, uh, that human is subject to anything else other than these same cycles in nature. So you've, you've helped us to understand that during this period, the, um, the boundary between the humanities and the sciences, between the arts and the sciences, is more porous. This is um, prior to what C.P. Snow calls the two cultures. And you've spoken quite eloquently about the ways in which uh, natural uh, scientists were arguing that there's something to be gained from studying uh, art and artists were saying that there was something to be gained from studying natural science. Um, are you, is there a kind of um, forward-looking implicit polemic in your work about where we are in relation to the division between the sciences and arts and the humanities? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I kind of, I think in the introduction, go over some of those more recent debates a bit. Um, but, I, you know, I, that's a hard one because I think from the perspective of the arts at this point, everybody's excited about science, you know, and, and you know, a great example is uh, the emerging or not even emerging anymore, the now sort of well-published field of neuro art history, if you will, or, or interest in the relationship between neurology and aesthetics. Um, but, you know, it still seems to me that that interest or, or you know, another example might be bio art, where a lot of artists are playing with genetics um, to generate new life, right? And, and those are, are certainly both in dialogue with the sciences, but also in dialogue with older ideas about uh, the relationship between natural generation and human creation. Um, but from the perspective of the sciences, I think there's still certainly more skepticism um, about you know, the value that the visual arts might have um, in the practice of, of the pursuit of science. And you know, I'm not sure I have an answer for what that utility might be other than that um, certainly, I think the humanities more general and the visual arts, I think, you know, play a role in sort of critical thinking in general, um, obviously help scientists or have the ability to help scientists sort of look at the ways in which their own paradigms 
are historically specific, are a reflection not just of hard science, but of uh, general ideas and approaches to nature um, that, that characterize a particular age. And there certainly are some scientists who are open to that and others who are, are very resistant to it. But uh, I think one great example of, of somebody who's um, sort of very interested in in um, the relationship between art and science today from the science perspective that relates to some of my new work is Richard Prum, who is an evolutionary ornithologist at Yale, but is looking back to sexual selection to understand beauty um, and, and has received a kind of complete hostile response from the scientific community, but our historians are all, you know, excited about it myself. <laughs> so there are, you know, figures I think in the sciences who are, are pursuing the intersection with real interest, but it's more limited from that side. So you've just uh, very quickly in passing alluded to your own uh, new work. And we actually have a question from Alice Perman that's asking that exact question. What are you working on now? And given what you've just been talking about, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Sure, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have a, a variety of things on the go, um, but the, the project that I'm most excited about um, and uh, an article will be coming out on this in Art History next year. Um, it's a project about the bowerbird, which is a bird um, that is native to Australia and Papua New Guinea uh, that collects um, a variety of uh, decorative objects, one might say, and puts them on display in order to attract a mate. Um, and this is sort of separate from a nest. It's, it's a kind of aesthetic display. And I'm, I'm looking at this uh, bird and particularly its historical reception going back to the um, 19th century, really more than anything else, um, before Darwin, in Darwin's time, and then later on, in order to sort of think about the ways in which the history of art has been written very much as this, as this anthropocentric history of civilization that uh, really in itself makes it impossible to think about other beings as potentially creative. And the project is not about necessarily analyzing the works of the, the bowerbird per se, which I, I cannot do as a homo sapien myself and, and not a bird, um, but it is about sort of raising questions about um, the way that the, the field itself has been sort of written um, and thinking about it, uh, really thinking about art from a post-human perspective. Could you give us a sense of the how you see the work on uh, Friedrich um, giving us an understanding of what's going on in the study of romantic visual art right now? How does your work fit into larger trends in the field? Yeah, I mean, I think there there have have been really a, a lot of publications in the last ten, even twenty years that bring art and science together. And so, um, my work is not the only one, uh, the sort of, or most of the literature, I guess you might say, is really um, focused more on poetry and, and literature in general and science versus painting and science, um, but not exclusively. And so I, I would say my work uh, falls in line with really a, a sort of growing body, even a vast body of literature that looks at the relationship between romantic literature and science. With respect to painting, um, you know, it's 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 hard to say uh, how it fits in really with with the, the sort of existing scholarship because I think it's in a way quite different. I kind of 
alluded to that in the beginning, um, but I, I would say that's maybe more because the field as a whole is quite senior. Uh, most of the scholars are, are um, you know, kind of on the way to retiring. And so it's, 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 it's a field that sort of is ripe for uh, new kind of interpretation. Um, but that's certainly not the case again with literature. I feel like you know what I've done with this book is is very much in line with what a lot of scholars have done. Just to follow up on that, is is that something that you see in other periods of art historical research, or is this just something that you're noticing in the Romantic period? No, there's there's been a lot of scholarship about art and science, um, particularly in the 19th century, um, and you know Darwin. Uh, has been a really important figure for a lot of art historians in the last 10 years as well. And so there's a lot of work that has particularly looked at the life sciences and uh, correspondences with, with painting, European and American painting. And so, yeah, I would, I would say that it's certainly something that we're seeing in a variety of different fields as well. And Renaissance uh, scholarship has, has definitely delved deep into uh, the topic of nature um, and ideas about nature extensively. Are there other artists in Germany during this period or in other nations that are uh, involved in romanticism where you see similar kinds of things being done in their visual art? That's a good question. I, I kind of started this project thinking that I might work on a variety of different artists, um, but I, I ended up working on Friedrich mainly because this sort of approach to Printing a portrait of nature seemed to actually be quite unique to him. Um, that said, um, I don't think he's the only artist who was interested in the ideas about nature that I sort of look at. And maybe the best example um, of an uh, important counterpart would be Philip Otterunga, who is less known mainly because um, his work is kind of really dense with iconography, um, but you know, he's quite well known in Germany and, and he died young as well. So his, his work um, is much smaller in terms of his oeuvre, but he wrote extensively. He has a, you know, volumes and volumes of letters in which he uh, is, is very much in dialogue with all of these naturalists as well and, and communicating similar ideas about um, the relationship between the human um, and plants and animals and what have you. And so I think it manifests in his work very differently, but nonetheless, those same interests are there. Are those interests being found in other um, genres of painting than landscape painting? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't think I have a, a good answer for that. I would have to think more about it. Um, I would say that, you know, at this particular moment, um, the the kind of categories of painting are kind of rigid. You know, there's still life painting, there's landscape, there's history painting. That begins to dissolve as the century, the 19th century wears on. Uh, but the only other category where I, I can think of sort of scholarship that has been written that sort of aligns with mine is in still life. Uh, the scholar Alexander Nemiroff has written a book um, about Raphael Peel, an American still life painter uh, from around the same time. Um, and he does argue that there are certainly these sort of investigations of of, or even a kind of animation of the, the still life forms that kind of evoke the human. Um, but with history painting, it tends to be so focused at this time still on uh, battles and mythology and religion that I'm, I'm doubtful whether we might see these same interests sort of playing out in that arena.
a couple of other comments uh, from Darte Ostmeyer. Um, but Runga has an allegorical approach, right? That's the first observation. And the second is Joseph Alper's color theory, question mark? Hmm. Alper's color theory. Um, well, so <laughs> Uh, in terms of Runga, yes, his paintings are allegorical, absolutely. Although uh, I think actually that's a bit of a misnomer. They're hieroglyphic in that his allegorical language is not uh, the same as the sort of this means this kind of thing, which uh, you know was characteristic of most European painting before the Romantic period. Everything sort of evokes ideas, but it's sort of unclear, and the sort of multiple levels of meaning are are almost indecipherable precisely because he's he's imagining nature to function like a hieroglyph um, that reveals itself maybe in sort of fleeting moments but but doesn't sort of ever coalesce into a, a concrete script there's no book of nature that's that's as as clear as say the bible itself um joseph alpers um yeah i'm not sure i have <laughs> I mean, color theory, uh, you know, Goethe and Runge's writing um, certainly contains all sorts of uh, references to nature philosophy and things like that. Um, so, you know, in fact, in this, in this volume here, my own essay um, on Friedrich, which is, you know, it's related to science, but unrelated to the other book, looks at color theory. So I encourage you to check that out. But also there's an essay in this book by uh, Thomas Lange, who's a uh, Runge scholar that also looks at the relationship between Runge's, Runge's color theory and uh, nature philosophy. Um, so I, I would direct you there. Nina, tell us the title of that uh, that volume, the edited volume again. Sure, it's um, Das Bild der Natur in der Romantik, Kunst als Philosophie und Wissenschaft, which translates to the image of nature in the Romanticism, art, uh, as philosophy and science. Um, I have requested that uh, the design library order it, but I don't think they have it in yet. Um, and it's one of those you know, things that's not widely available because small European press, but, but it'll get here, I assure you. <laughs> you can check it out. So Nina, we've come to the end of our time. I wanna thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your book. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And I wanna thank everyone who's joined us for uh, sharing your responses and your questions with Nina. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Great, thank you for having me. It's been great. Um, thanks again for joining us to hear Nina Amstutz uh, talk about her new book, Caspar David Friedrich, Nature and the Self. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, our upcoming sponsored events, and our UO Today interview show, or, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks everyone and we'll see you next time.